would you uh, take your bulletin out and let me highlight a couple of things for you that you, you did just hear a little bit about. Uh, today, the Big Yard Barbecue, um, the location has been moved. So for those of you 20-somethings who are going to attend, it's not at Veterans Park. You need a submarine to have uh, a barbecue there today. So it's going to be down in Big City. Uh, if you go out the back doors and down the side hallway to the very end, there's a nice uh, open space there, uh, a good meeting room. We have our Big City Kids ministry there going on right now. But after service, we're going to flip that room, and it's going to be uh, our Big Yard Barbecue. So all you 20-somethings, you can meet us there. It's going to be a great day today. Look inside your bulletin there, right in the center, uh, center panel, uh, you have this series called My Story. I wanted to share with you a couple of thoughts about that. In two weeks, we're going to start this series. Um, I've never seen anything like it or I've never done anything like it, uh, but uh, it's going to be a powerful time. We have three people who are going to share their story. And here's sort of the, the backdrop of the series. We're talking in April about the resurrection of Jesus and why the resurrection of Jesus matters what it does, what impact, what effect it has. And we're really following that series up with this series of my story, which basically says, here are some people who experienced resurrection life. Here are some people whose story will reveal the, the difference that resurrection makes in the life of a person. So on May 3rd, we have Paul and Angela. And then on Mother's Day, we have Suzanne uh, Cox, who will be sharing... For those of you who may be new to Kingwood, um, she, the, uh, my father-in-law was a pastor at Kingwood 35 years, and Suzanne is his wife. She travels all over the country and has an incredible story. So Mother's Day is going to be a really great day uh, for you to come and invite someone. And Manuel and Doris, uh, who are the leaders of our Hispanic ministry, are going to be sharing their testimony. And so we've just given you a short description here. But here's the reason we're giving it to you now. Because you have friends or family members or people that you know who some of these stories or maybe even all of them will relate directly to them. And so what I want to ask you to do is this is a huge moment of opportunity to see someone's life impacted and changed and touched by God. When they hear these stories, you, you, I've heard every one of these stories. I've sat... And, and talk to each one of these folks, and I've heard their full story. And I'm telling you, these are powerful, powerful stories of how God can change someone's life. And so in the, in the first week in May 3rd, we're going to hear about a couple who just got the wrong start in life and was still trying to unpack a lot of baggage. So people that you know that have dealt with relationship is issues and uh, uh, marriage issues, this is just an average American everyday family. And, uh, man, they'll be able to relate to so many people. And then Suzanne's story, uh, she was a drug addict till 31, had a dramatic uh, encounter with Jesus that changed her life. Not only changed her inside life, changed everything about her life outside too. And so that'll be a great story. And then Manuel and Doris have such a powerful story. If you're familiar with Kingwood, you may know who they are, but I almost guarantee you, you don't know their story or the search that they were on for many, many years uh, to find God. It's a great, great story. And so on those days, there's not going to be a, a sermon per se. There's not going to be a message. The series are the resurrection stories. And so I want to ask you now to go ahead and begin to pray and think who you can invite 
to be here for those stories. Um, I'm going to have a postcard for you next week that you can hand out. If you want more information about it, if you'll just follow me on Facebook. Uh, look for uh, P-J-A-Y-W-E-S-T, Pastor J. West, just the letter P, P.J. West on Facebook. You can look me up there uh, or, or at Twitter, and I'll be giving you updates when all our things are ready this week. I'll be posting them on my Facebook page. You can grab this graphic, and you'll be able to share it on Facebook with your friends and do a Facebook invitation that way. So I want you to uh, join us for that. It is going to be, I'm, I'm really, really excited about the opportunity we have before summer. This is our last opportunity to reach out and share resurrection life. So I want to ask you to join us that day and bring someone with you. Uh, those are going to be powerful moments. So we're talking about Jesus' resurrection. Uh, we've been talking about that since Easter. It just occurred to me that for some reason or another, we talk a lot about the cross leading up to Easter. And then on Easter morning, we talk about resurrection. And then we, we sort of, uh, like Christmas decorations, we put it away until next year. And then we pull it back out at Easter and say, isn't it incredible uh, what happened there and Jesus coming back from the dead. But I wanted to dig deeper into the resurrection this year because the, the resurrection of Jesus, in other words, Jesus coming back from the dead is the hinge that the entire New Testament swings on. I mean, it supports everything in there. Can you imagine what a sad end to Jesus' life if all we have is a crucifixion? If all we have is Jesus being tortured and beaten and falsely accused and tried and falsely judged and executed, and that's it. Can you imagine how sad the story would be? Without resurrection, who would even believe that the cross mattered? By the way, there were three people crucified that day. And three people died, and if all three of them stayed dead, what would be the difference? So we've been looking at what difference does the resurrection make. On Easter Sunday, we basically said uh, the resurrection matters because it's where we get our hope from. If we're stuck in life, if we find a place that we've hit a dead end, if we find a place that we need help, which we all do, then resurrection is our hope. Resurrection is what gives us hope and belief that God is for us, that he's not against us, and that he can intervene and help us in those moments. Last week, we talked about how we tend to see ourselves wrong. The resurrection gives us the power to see ourselves the right way, that we're not condemned, that we're not sinners, that we're not unloved or unvaluable or unworthy. But as we said last week, and if you didn't have a chance to, to get that, you can go on uh, iTunes and get it off our podcast. Uh, but what we said last week is we are justified that Jesus' resurrection, we looked in Romans 4.25, that we're justified by that. Now, after Jesus came back to life, resurrection was the main focus of all the disciples' teaching. And the Bible has gone all in on this one fact. So 1 Corinthians, if you have your Bible, you can look at it with me. We'll have it on the screen. If you don't, 1 Corinthians 15, 17-19 says this. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Now that's pretty heavy stuff. If there's no resurrection, 1 Corinthians says, then your faith is worthless. 
It means nothing. The Bible doesn't give us this uh, nebulous middle ground that we've tried to create in the world today where everybody feels good and everything's good and there's a little truth here and a little truth there and a little truth there. The Bible just never affords us that middle ground. In Corinthians, Paul says, if there's no resurrection, your faith is a waste of time. You're wasting your time, you're wasting your life, you're wasting your money, you're wasting your energy, you're wasting everything there is about you if there's no resurrection. Your faith is worthless, you're still dead in your sins, you're already condemned, and even if your faith were to bring you some temporary happiness, you're still more miserable than everybody on earth who has no faith. Now that's pretty heavy. I mean, that's a pretty heavy contrast to bring. So why does the resurrection matter? Here's the thought I'm going to give you today. Resurrection matters because it changes our reality. It changes our reality. So we can't talk about the resurrection without jumping into this subject a little bit. Uh, For there to be a resurrection, there has to be a death. So the question is, is did Jesus really die and did Jesus really come back from the dead? Now, if you're a critic of Christianity, if you can just keep Jesus from ever dying, then you can kill two birds with one stone because if he never died, he can't actually ever have come back to to life because there was no death and with no death there could be no resurrection. Now, recently a lot of effort has been put into trying to prove that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, the theory is he was drugged by his disciples, you know, when they put the little uh, thing up to his uh, face, that there was some kind of drug in it that made him pass out, and that the disciples later, after everybody left, snuck into the tomb and they got him, and they revived him and brought him back to the dead. This is called the swoon theory. He didn't die, he just sort of swooned there a little bit. The problem is the swoon theory flies directly into the face of all the facts, Let me give you some of the facts. First, Jesus was crucified by professional executioners who would themselves have been put to death if they didn't do a good job. What do you think the chances are that they botched it? What do you think the chances are that they didn't really kill him? Furthermore, they had seen hundreds of men crucified to death. It's very, very unlikely that he didn't die, but they thought he died. They knew what dead people looked like. They stuck a spear in his side, blood and water drained out, which means his heart had stopped beating. Several years ago, a team of doctors did a study on the experience of Jesus' crucifixion from a medical standpoint to try to determine what is it all that he went through and what killed him. And what they found is the challenge you have in crucifixion is breathing. Your body sweats, your body produces fluids, your your body begins to grow weak, and as you hang on the cross and hang there, all of that heaviness sits on you to the point that you can no longer breathe, so you push yourself up so that you can get air again, and then over time as you suffer, you slide back down. And you so many, many times as Jesus was was there hanging on the cross, he would have pushed himself back up in order to fill his lungs with air and breathe again. Now, these professional executioners, when they wanted to speed things up, sometimes they would let people just hang there for several days and they would hang there for several days. But when they wanted to speed it up, what they would do is break the legs of the person hanging on the cross because when you broke their legs they could no longer push themselves up anymore and they would suffocate and they, because they couldn't breathe. 
And, and this is what happened to Jesus. The professional executioners broke his legs so that he would suffocate to death. So think, though, before all of this even, Jesus, before his crucifixion, he'd already survived a sleepless night of trials and beatings. He was scourged, which has been defined as a punishment so terrible that many people died before they could even get to the cross, before they could even get to their version of the electric chair, before they could even get to the final punishment, they couldn't even survive the torture leading up to it. He was wrapped in a 100 pounds of linens and, and uh, spices, which would have suffocated him to death in the tomb had he managed to survive all that. And even if he made it that far, how would he have survived in the tomb hours and hours and hours after crucifixion with no food and no water and no medical attention? A few years ago, someone wrote into a newspaper advice column that featured questions about the resurrection, and the reader asked, Our preacher said that Jesus swooned on the cross and then his disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think, son, bewildered? Dear bewildered, take your preacher out, beat him with a cat of nine tails 39 times, nail him to a cross, hang him in the sun for six hours, run a spear through his side, embalm him, and put him in an airless tomb for 36 hours and see what happens sincerely. No, Jesus died. He really died. No doubt about it. Nothing else makes sense. As a matter of fact, a man named Dan Story, who has written 15 books defending the Christian faith, said this. Nowhere in Roman or Jewish history does anyone argue or even imply that Jesus did not die on the cross. Listen to this. It took 1,800 years after Christ's death, before this idea found an advocate. For it took us 1,800 years to think up another possibility other than Jesus actually died, and now all of a sudden maybe he didn't die. No, he really died. The facts all point to the reality that Jesus died and came back from the dead. Now, the disciples actually believed he came back from the dead. How else do you explain their behavior? Before the resurrection, they were scattered and ashamed and terrified and disorganized. The resurrection and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit changed everything inside and outside forever. See, the disciples were raised as Jews. Now, what does that mean? Without the resurrection, it's unthinkable that they would have changed so many things about how they, they behaved, how they practiced their religion as Jews other than the resurrection. So let's look at a couple of things that change. They started worshiping a man as though he were God. Do you have any idea what kind of heresy that is for a Jew? Unbelievable heresy. Except they started worshiping a man as though he were God. They ate foods that were completely off limits before Jesus came, died, and rose from the dead. They changed the day they worshiped from Saturday to Sunday, which was a weekly celebration. See, I don't know if you understand. When somebody says, hey, uh, join us Sunday morning for our celebration service, do you know what they're saying to you? They're not saying, hey, this is a carryover from camp meeting or revival or a tent meeting. No, no, no. This is a carryover from 2,000 years ago when Jesus died and rose from the dead, those band of disciples that followed him, the next Sunday morning they met at sunup in order to celebrate his resurrection. 
That's where our history comes from. That's why we meet on Sunday. Because Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead. So when we say, come Sunday and worship, celebration service, what are we celebrating? <laughs> resurrection. You came today to celebrate resurrection. That's a giant deal. And unless something dramatic had happened, these men would have never changed so much about how they practiced their faith. Now beyond all that, most of Jesus' disciples were imprisoned or beaten or killed simply because they would not stop believing that Jesus came back from the dead. Now here's the question. Why would they be willing to risk their own life and even lay it down unless they actually believed Jesus? They didn't kidnap in the middle of the night. I would not die for a lie I invented. And I bet you wouldn't either. He'd be like, okay, I didn't want to say anything, but if you're going to kill me, here it is. You know, we have no evidence in history, secular or biblical, that, that any disciple ever coughed up the goods, ever said, hey, we snuck them out. I didn't want to say anything, but we snuck them out. They died for this. Now, here's the deal. If the resurrection is real then what does that mean? Here's what it means. It means that truth is real. It means that Jesus told the truth. Not about just his death and resurrection. He told the truth about everything. It means that our reality changes. It means our perspective changes. Look, the truth is anybody can claim anything. We have more proof of that today than we've ever had at any time in history. Listen to the news. Scroll down on Facebook when you go home this afternoon and look at how many articles try to grab you with a catchy title. You know, I, I know better. I know better. I know better. And I still get sucked in sometimes. Some tantalizing article will say, did you see what just happened in the news? Or this person did this? Or this person said that? And you open it up and you go, no, they didn't. You just got me to open that so I would look at something you're trying to sell me. Anybody else? Anybody? No, never? No, you ne never get you? curiosity. They, they tantalize you with something and then you go, oh, I want to know about that. And then you open it up and what does it say? If you'd like the rest of the article, please subscribe. And I just want to throw it out in the yard. No, I don't want to do that. I just wanted to know. We have, we, look, anybody can claim anything. Watch, look at Facebook, surf the web, watch one of the courtroom reality shows where you got people there, they're claiming all kind of crazy stuff. We are inundated with constant uh, things that people are constantly claiming to be true. Now, Jesus claimed he was God. Now, you got to know people aren't going to let that one pass without some proof. Like somebody walks in and says, I'm God, I've got a question. I need to know exactly what brought you. How do you ID God? Right? He didn't have a driver's license. You're not looking for a, you know, you think you'd have to have a passport to travel that far or something. They asked Jesus for proof. You can't just go around claiming you're God without some proof. In Matthew 12, Jesus heals a man with a crippled hand, and that sets off Jesus' critics. And he leaves to get away from the critics. The Bible says in Matthew 12, you can read it. He leaves to get away, and a bunch of people follow him as he's going, and a lot of them in that group that are following him are sick because they see the man with the crippled hand healed, and they follow him thinking that maybe Jesus will heal them. And the Bible says he healed every one of them. All the people in that entourage that followed him that were sick, Jesus healed every one of them, which just infuriated his critics. 
And so, you know, being geniuses, you know what they ask for? They ask for a son. (laughs) I don't know. I'm just thinking, if a guy's going around healing everyone who's sick, I'm thinking that's a pretty good sign. But no, no, they want a sign. And so in Matthew 12, 39 through 40, we, we kind of pick up there. He answered when they said, show us a sign that you are who you say you are. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What is he saying? I will give you one proof. I will give you one fact of evidence. I will give you one sign that I am who I say I am. What is that sign? Resurrection. One sign. Maybe you remember in John chapter 2 when Jesus goes into the temple and people are selling stuff and gouge, price gouging and cheating people who are coming to the temple to offer their offering. Jesus goes into a rage. He gets mad. He flips over tables. He runs them all out of the temple. And he says, my father's house is to be a house of prayer and you've made it a den of thieves. You're stealing, you're robbing, you're gouging people. And he gets upset. And then they ask him, what authority do you have to chase people out of this room. What authority do you have to say what you just said? Who are you to do that? John chapter two nineteen. Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. What is he saying? I'll give you one sign who I am. And I'll tell you what it is, resurrection. I'll give you one proof who I am. And if Jesus came back from the dead, here's the thing, then everything he said was true. Resurrection is the sign, it is the proof and it is completely unique, unique to Christianity. There's no other religion in the entire world, never has been and never will be, where the founder of the religion says, I'll prove to you what I'm saying is true. Kill me, and in three days I'll come back. No one's ever done that. And I'll prove to you that I'm telling the truth. John 2.22, I love the Gospel of John because John is this older, reflective, wise man who's writing, and sometimes he'll put footnotes in. And when Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll rebuild it. And they said it took 47 years to build it. And he says, you don't understand what I'm saying. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll rebuild it. And John, in John 2.22, John kind of puts a footnote in. And he says, and after... He sort of jumps into the future now. This is what happened in the temple. The disciples are standing around half horrified by how Jesus is acting, not really knowing what to make of this. But after Jesus raised from the dead, his disciples recalled that scene. They recalled that moment. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. After Jesus' resurrection, his disciples believed Jesus' words. The effect it had on them was they believed that his words were true. Can I tell you what effect the resurrection has on you and I? The effect the resurrection has on us is we believe that what God says is true. The effect it has on us is it builds our faith and strengthens our understanding. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Just because we know the truth doesn't mean we don't have questions. Just because we're able to know the truth doesn't mean that we don't struggle. There are still unexplainable things. Why do good people suffer? Why, why are Christians being beheaded in orange suits all over the world today in Christian villages as old as, old as New Testament times? Why are they being dis, uh, driven out and relocated? 
Why doesn't God stop all the evil in the world? Why can't we see God? It's okay to have questions. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to not have it all figured out. It's okay to have doubts. But let me tell you something else. It's also okay to believe God when you don't know how it's all going to work out. It's also okay to believe when you don't see. It's also okay to not worry. It's also okay to not have to live in anxiety and say, I wonder if my faith is going to be strong enough to hold this up, to let this boat float. I wonder if my faith is going to hold up, carry me through this storm. Will it be enough and, and, and why? Why don't you have to even have the slightest concern about those things? You don't have to have anxiety over those things because like the disciples, we trace our faith back to his resurrection. Your root system, your tap root of your faith is anchored in the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is our source of faith. It's our proof. It's the ID that what he said was right. We don't have to be shaken. We don't have to know all the answers to all the questions because we know the answer to the main question. And the answer to the main question is not an answer. It's a person. And he died and he rose from the dead and we know him personally. That's the proof that everything he said is right. So the next time you hit a difficult situation that seems too big, seems impossible, seems overwhelming, seems like it's going to wreck you, when you hit doubt, when you hit worry, when you hit fear, when you hit confusion, just stop and slow yourself down and anchor your feet in the truth that Jesus gave you and remind yourself, I bet if Jesus could come back from the dead, he can handle this. I bet if Jesus could conquer death, He can conquer this. I bet you if Jesus could overcome that, he can help me overcome this. And I'm going to make it. You know what resurrection does? It builds your faith. It makes you strong when you're weak. It it is a revelation of him that is true. Jesus' resurrection changes our reality about him. So let me show you a picture this morning of what Jesus looked like uh, before he was resurrected. Uh, We've got a picture. That's a... That is a very painful thing to look at. This is what Jesus looked like before the resurrection. This is what Jesus looked like when he was crucified. This is what Jesus looked like when he was tortured. This is our picture of of Jesus hanging on the cross being tortured to death. But let's turn the page for a minute and let's look after resurrection and let's look and see what does Jesus look like now. This is what Jesus looks like now. Now, I want you to just leave that picture up there because I, I, want, I want you to I want to unpack it for a minute. I want to tell you where we get this picture from. Revelation chapter 1, 12 through 18, I just want to read it and unpack some of those descriptions. Verse 12 says, I turned around. Uh, let me give you a little backdrop. John wrote the book of Revelation, and the Bible says he was caught up in the spirit and had this uh, almost out-of-body experience. He had this He had this other dimensional experience where God opened time and allowed John to see into the future. Allowed John to see how things were at the end times. And he allowed him to get a vision. Now think how unbelievable this is. We actually have a man who lived on earth that physically saw what Jesus looks like after the resurrection. We don't get to see that until until we go to heaven. But John saw it. And, and, and it's recorded in Scripture for our encouragement. So let's look at that description. I turned around to see the voice. So here's John writing. 
that was speaking to me. And when I turned around and looked, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held up seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all his brilliance. So let's unpack that description for a minute. Here's the first thing. Jesus is still a man, right? That's not, that's not another kind of creature. He's a, that's a man. Jesus is still 100% God, but somehow he's still eternally a man. He's a man who knows our struggles. He's a man who knows our temptation. He's a man who went through what we've been through and understand. He's a man who stands beside the throne of the Father, and the Bible says, prays for us. And then he has a long, white, a flowing robe. And this robe reminds us of his kingship of his presence. There's a golden sash around his chest. That represents his authority. His hair, Revelation says, as John looked at him, is pure white. It represents purity. Jesus is holy, and he has no sin in him. And because of Jesus' death and resurrection, the price was paid for you and I. By trusting and following Jesus, Jesus' purity removes all shame and all rejection and all guilt from our life. He has blazing eyes of fire, one penetrating stare. When you lock eyes with someone, there's a stare that you can receive, a penetrating stare that just touches you on the inside, makes you weak in your knees. Jesus is watching. He sees everything. He looks through walls. He knows what's on your smartphone and in your deepest thoughts. Jesus can look into your soul, and he does. And John said his feet are made of bronze. Now, to be such an important part of the body, the feet are also incredibly vulnerable. I don't know if you've noticed. If you get a little flick of glass or a a thorn or even a little pebble, even a smallest rock in your shoe can just wear your feet out. And it can take a fully grown man, athletic, strong, and make him weak and vulnerable and bring him down to the ground. But Jesus' feet are made of solid bronze. They exude authority and strength. They are immovable, unshakable. He cannot be crippled. He cannot be harmed. The Bible says heaven is his throne and earth is his footstool. And then there's Jesus' voice. John said, I heard a voice. His voice is like thunder. It's crashing waves. It's Niagara Falls. In the beginning, Jesus said, let there be light, and there was. In the end, he will say, a new heavens and a new earth, and there will be. Ephesians tells us, Jesus' voice is the sword of the Spirit. His word, when we're challenged, when we're struggling, it's encouraging to know that his voice is a weapon that fights for us. And then Jesus' face is shining like the sun. And the Hebrew word that's usually translated in English as God's presence literally means see one's face. So when you say the presence of the Lord in Psalms, you're saying seeing God's face, seeing Jesus' face. Jesus' face is as bright as the sun, and when we spend time with him, our face starts to reflect his face. 
And if you read on in the book of Revelations, you see in John chapter uh, Revelation 1 that John describes Jesus as a mighty warrior, like a powerful general riding out to war, striking fear in the hearts of all his enemies. Now, why does that matter? Why go through all that? Why do we spend this time this morning looking at this picture and going through all of this? Here's why. Because we, we are prone to get the wrong picture of Jesus. Our, our tendency is to misunderstand who he is. We see him as some tortured, crucified person, that, that, and that's not how he looks now. We see him as unloving and distant and unforgiving and condemning and harsh and judgmental and unpleasable. He's mad. He's mad at us. That's how we tend to see him. Or he's indifferent to us. We see his face and we see disappointment. But this picture's not all the story. John said when he saw him, he fell on his knees. And he fell down before Jesus like he was dead. And there's John helpless. And what that says to me is right there in Jesus' presence, we don't really have anything to give him. We're helpless before him. We can't even stand in his presence. John may be thinking it's over now. You know, you always hear those people that say, I can't wait till I get to heaven. When I get to heaven, I got a few questions to Je- for I'm going to ask Jesus. Well, that's assuming you can stand up. That's assuming that the blinding revelation of the Son of God doesn't paste you to the ground like an oil slick. You're not going to march in there and kick the door open, put your feet up on the desk and ask some questions. It's not that room. This is the throne room. And here John is in the intimidation of this revelation of God and he falls dead and he's trembling and he's thinking probably look at the fire in his eyes look at the sword look at the might look at the strength what's going to happen and then Jesus does something that shocks us and redefines our reality he puts his hand on his shoulder that's an intimidating moment what's Jesus going to do (laughs) is he going to kill him Is he angry with him? Is he going to condemn him? Should we look away? Is this about to get ugly? Instead, he says something to John that is unbelievable. He puts his hand on his shoulder and he says, Do not be afraid. This powerful, unbelievable warrior, God, has taken his hand, put on the shoulder of this man, and he's... He's limited his strength down into a gentle touch. And he said, now don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. John, Revelation 1.17 says it like this. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. He's the one who died for John. He's the one who was raised from the dead for John. If you're one of mine, he's saying to him, the devil better not mess with you. You're mine. You're mine. You belong to me. That's what the right hand touch means. It means a touch of ownership. You are mine. That which I touch belongs to me. 
When this resurrection, when this resurrected Jesus touches you, amazing things begin to happen. I'm going to ask our, our worship team to come right now. When this resurrected Jesus begins to touch you, amazing things happen. You start to see the world different. You start to see yourself different. You see him different. He's not here to judge. He's not here to kill. He's not angry. He's not here to strike down. He's here to empower. That one little gentle touch. Don't be afraid. You are mine. Don't be afraid. I died for you. Don't be afraid. I was resurrected for you. Do you need him to touch you today? Here's one thing we've got to uh, sort of settle in our mind. If Jesus died and he rose from the dead, he's not just alive. Oh, that would be good. That would be good news. I've got better. He's in the room. He's here. He's with, he's with us in the room this minute. And he looks like, that's the cheesiest picture, but we don't have one. That's all we've got. A sketch, an outline, an idea. If he's alive, he looks like that. And he's in the room. And death and Hades, the keys to death and Hades are in his hands. And he's unlocked the door to heaven and swung it open wide. And he holds authority over the grave. And this morning, I wonder if you need him to touch you. Do you need him to remove guilt? Do you need him to remove shame because of your sin? Or maybe shame of the sin that somebody did to you. Maybe you need healing. He's a healer. Maybe you need victory in your life somehow. Maybe you need help in relationships. I bet if he could handle death, he could handle that. I bet if he could conquer all of that and come victoriously riding there, I bet he could handle whatever you got. Would you stand with me this morning? Every eye closed. I'm going to ask the prayer team if you'll join me now. It changes everything, including your reality. You see Jesus different. This morning as we pray, I want you to be encouraged. If Jesus died, if he rose from the dead, then he's alive forevermore. And he's here in this room. And your faith can be encouraged because one day the things that you believe that you cannot see, you will see. One day you will see them. One day they will prove themselves true. Your prayers and your struggle and your strainings not for nothing. One day the curtain will be pulled back and a blinding light will shine. And when it does, your faith will be proven true. And you'll know it will be true because you will see it with your own eyes. But until that day, we encourage ourselves with the resurrection. So this morning, with every eye closed, I just simply want you to do this. If you say today, I need Jesus' touch. That's it. That's it. We're not going to complicate it. We're not going to doctor it up. I just need Jesus' touch. I need it. I need His help. I need His touch. It could be for anything we mention. Shame or sin or grief or fear, worry or sickness in your body. You just lift a hand today and say, I need Jesus' touch. I need Jesus' touch today. You just lift your hand and say, I need Him to touch me. I need Him to forgive me. I need Him to help me. I need Him to strengthen me. I need Him to encourage me. I need Him to fill me. I need His truth in my soul. I need His truth in my heart. 
I need him this morning. Would you just lift a hand and say, that's me, and that's me. I do. I need Jesus' touch. I need his touch. As we're, as we're beginning to worship now, I want you, if you lift your hand, just let the prayer team come and pray with you this morning. Just let someone lock faith with your faith and agree with you and encourage you and, and minister Jesus' presence to you. Lord, this morning we love you and I thank you that you're not only alive, you're in this room. You're not only alive, but you're present. You were in the room before we got here. You were moving before we got here. You're already, you already have the answer that we need. And so, Lord, today we yield ourselves to you. We surrender ourselves to you. We ask you for your help today. If you lifted your hand, worship team, go ahead and begin to lead us. I want you just to come now. We'll sing this song one time through, and then we'll be dismissed. But I want you to come.